Also glad to be here with you as a church family ministering during this summertime when uh, Michael, Pastor Michael's on sabbatical. As we do that, though, something special today. We've got about eight outdoor services taking place. So I thought we might do is all gather together at this point, sort of bring your hands together and give God a praise offering for just the opportunity to worship and be with other believers today. Well, thanks for doing that. What we're going to do is take a look into God's Word. So if you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Now, as you do that, I'm going to pray before we look into God's Word. Lord, it's good that we can come to your Word because you speak to us through your Word. It's something that you do with your Spirit that somehow you take the Word of God and you illuminate it with your Spirit. And with that, you're able to speak to each one of us, to our hearts and to our minds. You're able to take your word and transform us and mold us and shape us to become like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we invite you today to do that. In your unusual way that you're able to do that, and each one of us looks into your word, let your spirit accomplish what it needs to do. Let us set aside those distractions, those concerns that we have, those things we're worried about. Let our hearts and minds come to your word now, and your spirit have just that freedom to minister to us, to encourage us, to comfort us, even correct us if needed. By your grace, by your mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I went to school into a private school up through sixth grade. And when I finally got to seventh grade, I went to a public school. And when I got there, what I found out was I didn't know anybody and no one knew me. Didn't make any difference until I really found myself in that gym class. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves picking teams. And the captain of the team was picking the different players and all. And he chose everything. Got down to about five players left. They chose Bob, not me. They chose Sam, and not me. They chose Billy, and not me. And finally, it's down to two. And he takes Tommy. And the last guy looked at me, the other captain, and said, What's your name? I said, It's Mike. He said, I guess we have to take Mike. There's something that happens in our lives when we feel passed over. That somehow people don't want us, or somehow we didn't get what we thought we should get. We've all experienced that. Sometimes you may have been passed over for a job. Maybe passed over for a promotion. Maybe you got passed over for choosing for a team. Somehow you thought you would have something, and you didn't have it, and you were passed over, and you didn't get to experience it. But there's a second kind of Passover. That's when all of a sudden there's sort of like judgment or something wrong coming your way. You may remember these as well. When you were in school and all of a sudden the teacher stepped out in the hallway and you're playing around and everything, all this commotion takes place. And as the teacher walks in, they just see Tommy throwing that spitball across the room. And Tommy gets detention, but nobody else. And all of a sudden, everybody else doesn't suffer the consequences for the trouble that has been there. We may have faced it when we watch a football game. We've all seen this take place where that running back gets up and punches the defensive back but the referee doesn't see it. The defensive back responds and starts beating up and the whole teams go to it, and the defensive team gets penalized, but the other team deserved it. It's that kind of punishment, it's that kind of Passover that the Israelites are facing. Here what we've seen up to this point is the darkness that comes into Egypt. Here's where the sin that we find in their lives this is where Pharaoh's been disobedient, the people have been resistant to Yahweh, and all of a sudden God's bringing that final plague on the nation of Egypt. In doing that, 
He's going to actually kill the firstborn of every family and even every animal that's there. And so it raises this question for the Israelites. How will God deliver them from this final plague? And Exodus 12 opens up that way. Here's what we read. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be a beginning of the months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, and here's what you shall say. Something happens in chapter 12. Up to this point, the first 11 chapters, you want to think of the book as a stage being set. We have Moses and Aaron on the center stage the whole time. God speaks to them, and then off to your right, we have the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And after God speaks to Moses and Aaron, they come walking in, and he speaks to Pharaoh, tells him what the plague is going to be, and the plague strikes the Egyptians. There's been nine plagues like that. And now we're to plague number 10. Up to this point, there's front and center with Aaron and Moses. The Egyptians come in, and God judges them. But in this chapter, the whole book changes. Aaron and Moses are going to come and speak with God. It almost seems like when the darkness is going on in Egypt, God comes now to speak to Moses and Aaron because there's light for the Israelites. And now the Israelites who've been waiting in the wing, they show up on stage and they're the centerpiece for the rest of the book. God will be finishing up with the Egyptians. God will now be addressing the Israelites. And he does this in two interesting ways right off the bat. He's creating for himself a new nation. If they're going to be leaving Egypt, who are they and what will they do? So the first thing he gives them is a new calendar. Notice what it said there in the text. He says, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It's the first of the year for them. It's like January 1st for us. He says, I'm starting right now the new calendar. This is what marks everything off. It's like Independence Day. How we mark even for ourselves. July 4th is Independence Day. For the Israelites, this is Independence Day. This starts them as a new nation. But then he does a second thing that's interesting. Look at verse 3. He says, speak to all the congregation of Israel. This is the first time he's ever called them a congregation. Up till now, they've been the Hebrews, the sons of Israel. But all of a sudden, there's this new term that God is going to use for the nation of Israel. It's so important that it's used over 100 times in the rest of the book of Exodus And even the book of Joshua. He's making a new nation. And to go ahead a little bit, when all of a sudden they get to Mount Sinai, they get a new law to be that new nation that he's creating. But as he creates this new nation, he finds himself saying, okay, here's how it's going to take place. It's going to take place when he introduces us here in verses 3 down to verse 11. He's going to talk about the sacrifice that is necessary. Here's what we read. In verse 3b, he says this, That as I come to you on the tenth month of, this, of the month, each of you will take a lamb, and according to their father's household, a lamb to each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one accord according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are divide the lamb. He talks about how they're to have this feast. Now, when you think of a feast, we're familiar with this. Feasts are things that are pre-planned, highly organized. Meals are set apart. People are known to be invited. We do this every year. 
whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, we all celebrate these family feasts. Well, I know with my family, we sit down on Thanksgiving Day, we know what will be there. There'll be the turkey, there'll be the gravy, there'll be the mashed potatoes, there'll be the sweet potatoes, and there'll be this special raspberry salad that Mel makes. And we'll all have that, and we know that is a Thanksgiving feast. The Israelites are no different. God's going to tell them what this feast is all about, and it begins with the people. He says every one of them is going to have to slaughter a lamb. When they slaughter that lamb, that lamb may be big enough to feed more than one or two or three people. And he wants to invite other people in. This is a sharing event that takes place for the Israelites. This is an engagement with their neighbors and friends. If you were single at that time, and you had your lamb, and you said, well, I can't eat all of this. God would tell you as that single person, invite your neighbors in and let them join you. If you're a retired couple and you've got your lamb, he would tell you, listen, you need to invite these other younger families in to join you. Or if you're a younger family and you've got some extra food, you're to invite some other people to join you. This was a huge feast to take place with all the people in the nation of Israel. But then he continues and he tells them, here's how the meal will happen. And here's what we read about the lamb of what's going to be here. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished lamb, a male that is year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, and you shall keep it until that day. And on that month, the whole assembly in the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Twilight is not at 7 o'clock at night. It's probably around 3 or 5 to 5 in the afternoon. Because they measured it by sunset to sunrise was a day. So probably late afternoon is what we're talking about, twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts of the lintel of the houses of which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh of that little lamb or that night, toasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head, its legs, along with the entrails. And you shall not leave any of it overnight until morning, but whatever is left until morning, you shall burn it with fire. So he describes what to do. They have this lamb, unblemished. They get to watch it for four days to make sure there's no blemishes on that lamb. Then they're to slaughter the lamb. And after they do that, they're now to cook it. Not just cook it, not boiling it, but to roast it over a fire. They're trying to do the fastest way to cook this meal. As they get it ready for the meal, they also have unleavened bread. Unleavened because leaven requires them to rise the bread up. And he's letting them know, you're not going to have time to do that. This is going to be something done in a quick fashion. He assures them when you get that lamb all ready, when you've got it all ready to go, you have to eat the whole thing that night. And whatever you don't eat, just burn it up and let it go. After he describes how the meal is to be prepared, what the lamb is to be, he then goes on what they're supposed to wear for this event. Here's how he describes that in verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So he says three things about it. He says you gird your loins. And keep in mind in those days, they were long clothes. And what they did if they're going to run or walk real fast, they would grab their clothes and pull them up and tuck them into their belt, freeing their legs to run as fast as they could. 
Now, the second thing they didn't do, they never wore their sandals in the house. So I said, I want you to wear your sandals because you have to get up and go really fast. But the third one that was odd, they had a staff with them. You only took a staff with you when you went outside. You only took a staff with you for protection or to take care of the sheep. Now, you may think this seems odd, but we've all experienced what this may feel like. There are cues to the family what's going on. When dad picks up that staff, the kids know, hey, where are we going? Now, if any of you own a dog, you've all experienced this. You find yourself with that dog putting your shoes on. Dog is just fine. You can put your sweatshirt on to go outside. The dog is just fine. But as soon as you grab that leash... That dog is running to you. It's clawing at the door. It wants to go because it's a cue. It's time to leave. That's exactly what happened here with the Israelites. Every family knew exactly what was going to happen. They knew this in a hurry, in a rush to eat this meal. And then God describes this sacrifice he's talking about in a little more detail. Here's what he says in verses 12 to 14. He describes this actual Passover that will take place. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both men and beasts. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You may recall, as we've heard in this whole book, there's been all these pagan gods that they have. Each one has been defeated by every plague, and God has finally defeated them all. He is God, and here's what he's doing. He continues, verse 10. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day shall be called a memorial day. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So God takes this Passover. And the Passover being where all of a sudden he passes over their house. Judgment is coming to all the Egyptians. Because there's blood on the doorpost. He's going to pass over their house. And he's not going to judge them. They're going to escape the plague that's coming to the Egyptians. God said this is so significant that they're not just going to practice this today. He says this feast, this celebration is a memorial. You are supposed to do this every year. And not only every year. Every parent is to teach it to their children. Every grandparent is to teach to their grandchildren. This is a celebration that goes generation upon generation upon generation way out into the future to be practiced every year by the Israelites. So how how is God going to deliver the Israelites from the plagues? Well, there's got to be a sacrifice. But he also talks about sin. And all of a sudden, when we come now to verse 15, he introduces this unleavened feast that they have to celebrate. It's understanding, here's what we're going to see. The first day of the unleavened bread and feast is the Passover. It is part of that whole week of seven days. He describes it this way. He says, in seven days, verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. But on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses... For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from the land. Now we're introduced to leaven. He says this week is going to take place. The whole idea is everything halts and comes to a stop. You need unleavened bread. 
You're going to stay with your family during this time. Nothing else is going to take place. No activities. The focus is on Yahweh and on this feast. But if you do it, it's without leaven. He says, if somebody does not, it has leaven in their house, he's going to cut them off. Now, there's two ways this word could be identified. One is he could actually kill them. But it also can be used as a metaphor. The whole idea that if you're in fellowship, if you're enjoying this meal with family members, and you have leaven, you can't hang out with the family any longer. You have to be cut off or set outside until the feast is over. And now that it's over, you can rejoin the family, rejoin the worship, have a cleansing for your sin. It's interesting when we come to the New Testament. It actually talks about this too. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8, here's what we read. Clean out the old leaven, that which you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sanctified. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the New Testament seems to identify this sense of sin that we're cleaning out. This feast is identified. There's a cleansing that takes place on a daily basis beyond the Passover. Something needed on a regular basis. Because sin still crops up in the life. So for them, they were found themselves, get rid of the Egyptian culture. All the values they had. All the things you had learned there and set those aside. Because as a new nation, you'd be a follower of Yahweh and obey him with the new laws that you're going to follow, and being obedient people. He continues and talks about this congregation and tells them how they're supposed to observe this in verse 16. He says, On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and have another holy assembly in the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. He says, You're going to have this feast. But you're going to gather everybody together on the first day of the assembly and on the last day of the assembly. And when you gather this congregation together, it's marked them out as holy people following Yahweh. That means the unleavened is taken out. They're God's holy people to follow him. And they're called to deal with their sin on a regular basis continues on from this, and he moves us down to find ourselves now at verse 21. And everything changes again. Up to this point, we've had Moses and Aaron on center stage. Yahweh has come in and spoken to them. And now their responsibility is to bring all those Israelites in, this whole congregation in on stage, and talk with them about all that God has said. And now it deals with faith on the part of the congregation. Here's what we find happens next. Verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that was in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come to your house to smite you. So we get this description. 
Here's what the Israelites are going to do. Elders are to teach everybody this. You're to go home. When you go home, you're supposed to take this lamb and slaughter it. I just want you to think what this looks like for a family. Can one person at the same time hold the lamb, slaughter the lamb, and catch the blood? Or was it something a family had to do together? That there's more than one participant in this. That somehow they all have a feel for what it is to take the life of this lamb. Somehow it's done in a way that what they're instructed to do is hold that lamb in such a way. Maybe by the feet and its head down. That when you cut that artery and the blood comes out, somebody has to hold the base in there to catch all the blood. And then he describes it very specifically. With this blood you need to use a hyssop. Hyssop was a... What's a flowering plant they had was sort of in the mint family. The way it grew was it had all these white little flowers on it and all these hair filaments on it. And you grabbed a bunch of these and you had these hairy filaments, these flowers. And when you swashed it through the blood, it could hold the blood on the hyssop that you had. And then you're instructed what to do with it. You're to walk up to the door of your house, dip that blood into that basin, and put it on the doorpost on the right. A doorpost on your left. And the doorpost on the top. And with the blood on the outside of your house, you then close the door and step inside and you do not step out again. Why? Because the destroyer is going to come. And as the Lord's going to come to do that plague, that destroyer at night is able to see that blood and know you're inside and safe. That you're covered with that blood and will pass over your house and will deliver you from this plague. Oh, the people realize what's taking place. Here's how they describe what happens next. Verse 24. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. It will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he promised that you shall observe this right. And it will be about when your children will say to you, What does this right mean to you that you will say this? It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped. Think what he's identifying. This event is so important that he wants us to understand his families. Dads and moms, listen to this. He wanted them as mothers and fathers to know when they left the land and they celebrated this, somehow doing this some night in their home, celebrating their feast, their children are going to say, why do we do this? Why do we celebrate this? Why do we eat this lamb? Why do we eat this unleavened bread? Why do we eat these bitter herbs? Why do we do this? And you as a parent have the opportunity to tell your children How the Lord delivered you. He passed over you. Because the blood was on the doorpost of your house. And you stood on the inside while this destroyer came by. It's interesting. After all this is told to the children of Israel. It says what they actually did. Not only did they do that piece. But here's that that last verse I read goes. It said this. And the people bowed low and worshipped. There's two different words here. To bow low actually dealt with the head. It was the idea that you bow your head in reverence to someone else. You just look down and make no eye contact and sort of bow to another person. 
It said when they heard all of this, their response was to bow before the Lord God of who he is. But then it said worship him too. Now that's a different word. In fact, that's a word that comes down to actually mean to be prostrate out on the ground. It's almost like you're to lay flat on the ground, hands out, stomach on the ground, feet on the ground, everything on the ground, prostrated before God, worshiping the God that he is. Not standing up, not staring at him, but with your eyes down in worship, in worship of Yahweh. It gets done, and here's the final word that most it records. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Think of it. They're told to carry out this sacrifice of this lamb. They're told they need to clean out the leaven, the sin in their life. And then they're told that to carry out this action requires of them a faith, a faith in the promises of Yahweh that he will pass over their house if they do it. How is it that God will deliver the Israelites from the plague? God delivers his people when they place their faith in the Lamb of God. Think about it. They actually put their faith in the Passover Lamb. And because of their faith in that Lamb, that shed blood on the doorpost, God passed over them completely. Now, that's interesting that truth. It's not just for Old Testament saints. When we get to the New Testament, the scriptures talk about Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God. One of the first references in John chapter 1. John the Baptist is baptizing all these people. He looks out and all of a sudden, John and Andrew, two of the future disciples of Jesus, see this man walking by. John points him and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And these two men go and follow him. When we find ourselves getting to Hebrews 9.22, it says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That idea of the blood on the doorpost, God demands a shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. We get to 1 Peter 1.19. Here's what we read at that point. Peter writes this, Knowing that you were redeemed, with perishable things, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from futile way of a life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We find in the New Testament's ongoing statement that it's by the blood of Christ that we are redeemed. So much so in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 or 7, it even calls Christ our Passover. So if God's going to deliver his people by faith in the Passover lamb, what does that mean for us? Now, you could be listening today, and for the first time, you're starting to hear this idea that there's a need for forgiveness of sin. For you, it's recognized that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you know he died on the cross, was raised again on the third day. You have to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In doing that, his blood will cover all your sins. You know what happens then? God will pass over you when it comes to that final judgment. You will be part of the family of God because you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today you'd be called to be one who trusts in Christ. 
You could be that one listening today and somehow realize you've never done that. You've been religious. You've done a lot of things. But the idea of putting your faith in that Passover lamb to be delivered by God from his judgment is what you need to do today. Placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what else this means for us? The idea that the parents are supposed to tell the story to their children of the Passover. So I want to ask every mom and dad this question. Do your children know how you came to Christ? Have they ever heard your story? Have you sat down and told them, here's the day I heard the gospel. Here's the day I trusted in Christ. Here's the changes I've seen in my life. Here's the sins that God had to forgive in my life. And I'm a new creature in Christ. Think about it, dads. Do your kids know your personal testimony? Do they know the day you trusted in Christ? If they asked you about the Passover lamb for your own personal life, could you tell them your story? Mom, that's true for you too. Have your kids heard your story of how you came to Christ? Do they know about the Passover lamb in your life? Do they know how you believed in that Passover lamb? And because of that, God delivered you from the judgment of sin? And you have that forgiveness of sin. That's a great truth to share with our children, with our neighbors, but in particular with our families. How often I found it interesting asking people how they came to Christ. And when I share their story with other people, they say, I never knew that. Because somehow we don't have a tendency to tell our stories to our own children, to our own neighbors, to our own family, to our own friends, how we trusted and believed in the Passover lamb and were delivered from God's judgment. And finally, there is, I want you to think about this too. Is there any leaven in your life? You know, that Feast of Leavens was to do after the Passover. It somehow brought in the idea, there could be sin in my life I need to deal with. So I want you to think about that. We've all found ourselves in the last several months, our life has been changed a lot. But is it where your mind, your thoughts, your actions have somehow moved you into areas? that are areas of sin. Is that some of some attitudes you have? That God would call sin? Is there a sense that you don't walk in the spirit? That people don't see that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? But is it where they see more strife? More anger, more malice, more gossip, more things that are not good qualities in our life. And we really need to come forward and confess those sins before our God. Now, when we think of this whole passage of what it brings forward, I think all of us can quickly think, you know, there's something in the New Testament all about this. It's what we call communion. Somehow the Passover seems to be linked right with communion. In fact, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his own disciples when he instituted communion. When all of a sudden he found himself sitting with his men at that table and offering them the bread and the cup, saying this is a new covenant in his name. It's interesting how the New Testament talks about this. When all of a sudden we realize in 1 Corinthians 10 it says this. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
on the bread that we break. This is not participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we are many, are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So what we're going to do today is we're going to actually practice communion as a congregation. Now we've got two things going on here. If you're at one of our outdoor services, you've been given a little cup. With this cup, what you're going to find is you have both the bread and the juice. If you peel off the first layer, there'll be a little wafer in there. And we'll take the bread first. And then when you peel off the second layer, you've got the juice that you can drink. And if you're at home, you'll be more like me here. You'll have some bread that you can take. And you'll have a cup that you've prepared. And the process will all partake together of communion today. So in doing this, here's some other verses that are important for communion. Paul wrote this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so to eat the bread and drink the cup. In other words, before I partake of the bread or drink of the cup, I'm to examine my heart. Remember that leaven, that feast of unleavened bread? That's what this is all about. So we're going to take a moment or two for silent prayer. I want you to take the time to think in your own heart. If there's some sin, some attitude, maybe the way you've been speaking to your kids, maybe you've been speaking to your parents, maybe the way you've been talking to family, maybe it's the attitude you've had, maybe the things you've been thinking about that you know are sin. And before you partake of these elements, that you confess those to God. Why do I say that? 1 John 1 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's go to silent prayer, examining your heart. Then I will close us in an amen. Okay, let's go to prayer.